Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by Sugarwish. Sugarwish is an online gifting site that provides a delightful gift experience followed by delicious treats. They get to choose delivered directly to their door. Here's how it works. A sugar wish can be sent to anybody. So if you're the recipient, you open up an email and it says, someone has sent you a sugar wish and you open it up, you click and it says, pick any four of these delicious candies um, to fill your basket. So you get to look through everything from gummy worms and M&Ms and Skittles and jelly beans and everything. Um, and you click and then check out and it's sent to you in this beautiful box with all these candies inside and a ribbon. And it's just beautifully packaged and sent right to your door. And so somebody, basically, you get to customize your own gift. And it's really awesome. And I did this. And I sent some to my son at boarding school. And we got some here for Halloween. And I highly, highly recommend uh, this company. Um, definitely go check it out, sugarwish.com. Christy O. Tate is a Chicago-based writer and essayist. Her work has been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, Pithead Chapel, McSweeney's, Motherwell, Entropy Magazine, A Perfect Wedding, Together.com, Brainchild, and others. Her current book, which I loved, is called Group, and the subtitle is How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. Welcome, Christy. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I am so excited to finally be talking to you because I got this book in the middle or towards the end of the summer, I guess. And I opened it up and I know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover or anything, but I opened this book up this summer and these are my favorite colors and this is my favorite design and this wins my like favorite cover ever award, just in case you were wondering. (laughs) Thank you. I feel super lucky. That was one of the first designs and I thought this has exceeded all expectations. So I love that blue. Amazing. Yeah. My favorite color. So could you please, I know your subtitle is how one therapist and a circle of strangers saved my life, but could you explain a little more in depth to listeners what group is about? Sure. So the book opens and I had just completed my first year of law school and I'd gone to the bursar's office and I got a little index card that told me my class rank was first and I didn't feel any joy. I felt really, really depressed. And I started having suicidal thoughts because my life looked really great on paper. And obviously my professional future was going to be fine, if better than fine. But inside, I just was so lonely. And I didn't even have that word yet. I had to go to therapy to learn that word. But I was isolated. I had no close friends. I'd watch people from college go on girls trips and I'd be like, how do they do that? And people would reach out to me and I didn't know how to reach back. And so I thought, well, this is great. I'm just going to die alone. So a friend recommended her therapist and I was on a student budget. So I was like, I can't do therapy. 
And she was like, well, it's group. And so it's cheap. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. And I could see something different in her eyes. And so it's this, the memoir is the story of how I went to group and my life was cracked open by the people I met there and the therapist who sort of is the ringleader of all of it. Wow. I loved your descriptions of, well, not only the other people in the group, but Dr. Rosen and how it actually you had met him. So you have been intense at 12-step programs for eating disorders for quite some time. And in one of your meetings, you had actually had him come, but he was Jonathan R. in the in the group. What was What did that feel like? Well, it was terrifying because when he opened the door, I was like, is that the same guy? And then I, because by, between the time I made the appointment and then sat in the waiting room and then he opened the door, I decided this is it. This is the one thing that will save my life. And I had my heart set on it. And then he opened the door and I'm like, oh, I know him from 12 step world. And I thought that would be an automatic disqualification. So I'm like, well, I won't tell him. (laughs) And I was like, why would he recognize me? There's tons of women and people in these meetings. And he didn't recognize me after the first session. But then I started to feel like, well, someday he might, it might trigger him and then he'd have to kick me out. And that would be so embarrassing. So it became like one of the first like tests of, can I tell the truth? Can I, can I risk rejection by saying what I know, which is, I know you from meetings. It seems like you're not supposed to know that about your therapist. I know this goes back to like Lori Gottlieb's book. Do you know that now she talked in the beginning of that book as a therapist of running into a patient at the Starbucks and having, you know, she was a mess and that forever altered her relationship with her patient. And now we go to your book where it's sort of similar where you have this in, you know, view into your therapist that most people do not have. (laughs) and Should not perhaps have. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to, I obviously I only know what transpired for me, but the idea of the blank slate is not quite as blank in my case. (laughs) I suppose traditionally. I could so relate to the times in your book where in therapy you were asked to do or say something and you were just so uncomfortable uncomfortable that I could like feel you cringing off these pages. Like you were like, no, 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 I'm not doing that. And they were like, I I actually can't even say it on this podcast, what they were suggesting that you do, but you were like, (laughs) I could never, because part of the work was opening you up to love and men and not just totally bad for you guys. Yeah. 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 I had a bad Part of what drove me in was the, I was bereft of all relationships, but it was particularly salient in my relationships with men. I tended for, to fall for guys who were alcoholic or had very serious depression and didn't have the ability to be in a relationship. And side note, I didn't either, but I could just focus on them and say, why don't you love me? I bought you pineapple, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the uh, reliable pineapple love trick that we all we all rely on so much, you know. <laughs> it's standard. It's very standard. Very standard. My question about group therapy, by the way, because I've never actually been in group therapy, but have been in regular therapy. Do you ever get a diagnosis? Like, do, does that, I mean, I know you had three sessions at the beginning, but does everybody get like a pull aside, let's go in the corner, P.S. you have OCD or something like that? That is such a great question. And I suppose, I think, so how I've seen this play out for me and my groups is people have brought in insurance forms and you have to put in a code in order to get reimbursed. And so everything that is negotiated happens in groups. So if I had 
I saw many people come in and say, I need your signature, Dr. Rosen, on my insurance form, but they want a code. And they say to them, like, what do I have? <laughs> like, what am I? And, you know, we would have long discussions like anxiety and depression is a certain code or whatever. And I remember I always paid out of pocket because I was, this is terrible. <laughs> this is like not a part of the book, but I'm very, very afraid of forms. And so I just felt like it was easier. Just, I just always knew I'd have to earn enough money to go to group because I'm so afraid of forms. Anyway, so I remember one time I said, this was probably year two. And I said, what, what's, what do I have? Do I have PTSD? Do I have anxiety or depression? And Dr. Rosen said, well, why do you want to know? And I was like, well, what's wrong with me? What's, what's my thing? What's my label, right? I knew I had an eating disorder, but that was before I even got there. And he really discouraged me. I didn't press it super hard because as soon as he said, why do you want to know? I realized my motives weren't good for me. I wanted to know so then I could be in that box and then I could like go off and do a checklist in a magazine. And I have not pressed it and I've not asked for my notes, but I can imagine a scenario where if somebody had a reason, if somebody had needed to know or wanted to know, it would be discussed in group and they could get that information. But it's hard to get information in group without a full discussion, which is something you have to weigh if you really want to go there. Wow. Well, I was just could not believe all the stuff that came out in your group and even your unexpected moments with individual members of the group and how those just, you were like, wow, I'm not alone anymore. Like Marty and, you know, I'm, it was just so sweet and like heartwarming in a way. I don't know, <laughs> which yeah. is not your, I mean, not that this, I, that's probably mischaracterizing this book, which is very emotional and, but it's so funny too. And I don't know. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny, like sessions themselves can be very brutal. And that would be my lived experience, like someone confronting me on things I don't want to talk about, or that are painful, or, that, or, or I start to talk about it, and then I'm misunderstood. That experience is so painful. And that's some of the work of intimacy that I had just never done. I had never, I was really immature in that way. And that's why I was so alone. But when I look back and some of the quieter moments with individual group members in group and outside, they were so filled with like love and care. And I had just been running from people for so long that I couldn't, I didn't know that people might just like rub your back if you're crying or hand you the tissues or offer to come get you. I just, I had kept myself so isolated that those acts of kindness couldn't even penetrate my defenses essentially. When I met my current husband, by the way, and we were like walking down to the tennis court and I was upset about something that had happened with my daughter that day. I didn't know him that well. And I wasn't looking for a relationship, but he put his hand on my back and was like, are you okay? And I married him. <laughs> yes, reader, I married him. Yes, reader, I married him. So I'm just, I get the power of those little connections when you feel like you haven't had them in so long and you so need them. And I don't know. He probably, he's probably like, what am I even doing here? <laughs> this is all a big mistake. Anyway, <laughs> but the part of your book during the accident on the beach in Hawaii was, first of all, so well-written and just like edge of my seat type of reading, which is always wonderful as a reader. But I'm so sorry for what happened. Are you able to share now or do you want to like keep it quiet or whatever? Yeah, I think probably sharing is probably helpful. I feel like that experience. Like I was so young. It was right before my 14th birthday. And 
it was such an amazing, I mean, I was from a very modest family in Texas and we weren't going to be going to Hawaii, you know, and I had, there was a friend of mine and her family had been so welcoming and so loving to me. And we went to Hawaii and while we were there, her father drowned in the water of the ocean. And I really like for years, I just didn't talk about it. And it, but I thought about it. It's not like I thought about it all the time, but like right around the anniversary time, I'd get really emotional and kind of a panicky feeling. And I felt like I was never allowed to talk about it because it was a long time ago. I mean, I remember saying that was a long time ago and it had been eight years, you know? And so each year I had an excuse not to, it wasn't my dad. I think I had the overriding feeling that Well, I got to go home to my family in Texas and my dad and mom were alive and we were all well. And so I felt like, well, that's not really my, it's almost like that didn't happen to me because it wasn't my father. And so that's some of the early work I had to do in group to see what the cost was of disavowing the trauma for me and how how that might have impacted my ability to attach. (laughs) You know, I was like really, I was so out there like, I'm a recovering bulimic. And I had all these, I had stories I was willing to tell about myself, but then there were these quiet ones that I felt buttoned down about. And they were, I think they were obviously tripping me up in relationships. Before the accident on the beach or the drowning, were you able to be more open with people? Like, do you feel like, I know it's, it's such a, a at an important age, right? Where things would have developed and then didn't. But like as a child, were you very withdrawn in terms of how you were talking to people or did anyone notice a shift in you? Like, did your family or anybody? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I mean, before Hawaii, I was, there was already, I mean, I'm pretty outgoing and extroverted and I did always have friends. I think I, from a very young age, I had a lot of shame, shame about my body. I remember that by age five. I wasn't actively bulimic until I was right before Hawaii, actually. So I think I think timing really matters. Like the woman that I went, she was a girl at the time, the family that I went with, she and I tried out for cheerleader together the summer or the winter before we'd gone skiing. And she's lively and hilarious. And I was there. And I remember like, this is not, even if I can't quite remember who I was, I know who she was. And she wouldn't have picked some morose like bump on a log. Like I remember us laughing. I have like snapshot memories of us laughing and I was kind of a good student, but I was also kind of like a wise cracker as you can maybe imagine from the book. And I would kind of like be, I had an irreverent sense of humor that seemed maybe a little more male than female, but at the time, the way that Texas is coded. So I think that it was like the beginning of adolescence and the trauma and probably even without that, I was gearing up for just regular adolescent strife. And then I think you add in that, I think it sort of like bumped me off the road for quite a while. And you say, you know, it wasn't your dad, but it's not like you were in the hotel and you found out he drowned. I mean, you were on the beach and saw him and had to pull him on the beach and get help. And you yourself had almost drowned a second ago. I mean, that is hardcore. I mean, I have not, I've had a you know, everybody's had stuff in their life, but most people have not had to pull a drowning grown man out of the water. I mean, that's a lot to hold onto and not talk about and to not feel like you have permission to cope with it is a lot. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm sure a lot of people have this experience, but 
now that I have a daughter who is, she's not that old yet, but as I imagine like packing her off to go on a trip with another family and imagine getting the phone call that my parents got. And I just, it's now I have much more compassion for myself and carrying that burden. And I thought it like, I had the insane idea that it was, I could have prevented it or I should have, or that is a lot for a kid to carry. And I can see that now that I have kids approaching that age, I'm like, whoo, wow, (laughs) I would have done that. I'm glad I got the help I needed. Let's say that. By the way, do people still go on vacations with other families? Because my kids, I don't like nobody I know kind of does that anymore. Maybe families go together, but like the idea of like sending my kid off on someone else's vacation. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It just like, it used to happen all the time. I brought kids all the time. I went on other, I mean, it's like, Yeah, that's a really funny question. Like, I don't know of any, the only instances where I know that, like in our community is there, we know some kids who were only children. And so they may double up for obvious reasons, but you know, it's not, it's not nearly as prevalent as it was when I was growing up in the eighties, you know? Yeah, me too. It was like, who's coming on vacation with us? Each of you take a friend, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The bring a friend thing. It's like, I would take friends to the exotic location of forest in Texas where my grandparents had a farm and it was like super fun. And I would take all kinds of friends there. And like now I just like, it's, it's funny. That's a interesting marker of change and generations. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, and the idea that I would just like not spend my vacation with my child. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I like am fighting my ex-husband about like, wh- how many days of the vacation can we each have? And to be yeah. like, well, I don't know, let's just send her with like the Joneses over there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I know. It's funny. so funny. Um, not that there's anything bad in it. I just, it used to happen all the time, but yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> so tell me about the act of writing this book. So you, you sort of alternate between being private and not private, right? Like some of these things you held close to home, some you feel okay with, but now you've like let it all out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I, when I started the book, I, I did a first draft. I started the book on November the 9th of 2015. And I remember the date. Cause I, I just did some research about it. I was like, how long have I been living with this book? And at first I was, you know, the first draft, first drafts are terrible. Right. And it was just like antidote, like then my therapist said this, and then I dated this guy and it didn't have any like arc or some of the heart and no specificity. Like there was no scene of me binging on apples. I was very light about the Hawaii situation. So it was pretty superficial and I got feedback (laughs) that it was superficial and I needed to dig deeper and I didn't know how. I didn't know how to revise a novel. I mean, it's not a novel. I didn't know how to revise a whole book length. And I ended up in a situation where the writer, Lydia Yuknovich, she does a class called Body of the Book. And you can workshop in a small group the first 130 pages of your work. And I thought, oh, I'll do that. And then they can tell me what's missing or what am I doing? And it was incredibly transformative because they were able to both Lydia and my workshop mates who were incredible, they would circle something. Like I said, oh, I vaguely made a comment. Like, oh, I I binge on apples at night. And then I moved on very quickly. And everybody circled it like in red pen, like show us. And I was like, show you? Like every apple? It felt to me like that would be tedious. And once I went in there, all the places where they said, give us a scene, I started building scenes. And I think that's where a new energy sort of came to life 
instead of just being, I mean, telling, I was showing what I was like, what happened and what I'm like now because of this process. Wow. (laughs) So in terms of like the law career and where you are today, now, of course, you're an author, which is amazing. Uh, What is like your daily life like? Tell me about like (laughs) your daughter. No, I mean it. Like, cause now I feel so invested in you with the book. I feel so, I feel really lucky. The, The great thing about like talking about the book now or having it out in the world is Every day I feel grateful. Every day I talk about the book, I touch back to that woman who was first in her class. And she, I clung to that because it's like all I had. And now it's so obnoxious to be like, I was the valedictorian. But it's like literally, it was like the only tent pole I had. And so when I look back, I get to think about who's in my life today. You know, I have two children, I have a husband. It's Corona time. So we're all home doing our things in our little corners of the world. And I still go to group. And so in the mornings, I, my writing time, and I still work full time. So that's that. So I really am really committed. I get up really early in the fives and I do writing. I also do meditation just because I don't know how to survive things that are happening in the wider world without a little bit of meditation. I do the writing until the people wake up around me. I get them going. I do my day job. During lunch, I do more writing. That's when I would meet with a writing group. And then twice a week, I zoom into my therapy group. And, you know, as you can, if what readers will see is like the members of my group and I are very close. And so I'll go on a walk with someone from group or we'll meet for a socially distant coffee. And so it's a really full experience. And the other day I was complaining to one of the characters in the book, Max. I was like, you know, this is like a super obnoxious thing. I'm so busy. I have so much going on. And he, first thing he said was everyone does. So get over yourself. And also he'll say to me, whenever I complain, he'll say, this is the life you wanted. Remember? And I'm like, Oh yeah. Like getting, driving my son to the baseball field or getting my daughter to her outdoor dance class. It's like, this is exactly what I wanted in my minivan and my, my family and all these people and phone calls to return to people who love me and who might want to, who want to fill me in. Like that is exactly what I wanted. And it's like anybody who has a full life, it's kind of like, what plate am I going to drop today? But it's a privilege to have plates. It's a privilege to have plates. I love it. (laughs) It's so true. In terms of advice to other people who might want to write a memoir, what would you say? I would say read, read, read. Read the memoirs you love. Read them again. Recently, this this is like super advice I'm taking myself right now, which is I've reread some memoirs that I really love, particularly Claire Dieter's Love and Trouble and Case yep. Lehman's Heavy. Every year I read Lydia Yuknovich's Chronology of Water because I love those books and they're artists and I want to get inside of what they're doing. And I think that the idea that like the only part of writing a book is sitting down and writing has not been my experience. So I would say reading widely also like join a writing group. Like I get together, we we're all long distance, my writing group, we've been together almost three or four years. We all live across the country. We were telephonic because this was before everything went Zoom. So now we've got on Zoom, but it's free. I mean, you have to make the time for it, but I learned so much from the women and the way that they push themselves. And 
some of them are novelists, some of them are essayists, some of them are memoirists. And having the community is invaluable. Learning from them, getting that every two week feedback on my writing. I still get like, we're going to talk about one of my pieces this afternoon. I still get nervous. Like, even though it's a first draft and it doesn't need to be great, but just the exercise of putting myself out there, I think that's really invaluable. And for years, I wanted a writing group and I didn't know how to get one. And what worked for me was I took a couple classes and then I would ask people in the classes, like, can we, it doesn't have to be giant. It could be one other person. I just think having company and feedback is really invaluable. I don't know how people do it without it. That's great advice. And so what are you working on now? What's your piece for today? (laughs) Today's piece? Well, I was trying to write a piece about one of the things that I'm interested in is what's happening to my body right now. (laughs) Because it feels like, well, there's middle age, of course, there's anxiety, there's, you know, upcoming elections and book publications. And I've been having this totally random trapezius pain. And I didn't even know what the trapezius was until I got the pain. And so I'm writing about what the different, uh, the, the sensation and what the trapezius means, like in other, like in some, you know, like in woo woo Eastern medicine, the trapezius is the, it's the heart of the back or whatever. So I'm just exploring what that pain means. And I think when it started was when I went to record the audiobook. I was sitting there and I was reading a scene it was painful when it happened, painful when I wrote it. It was like one of these groups that was very intense and I'm alone in the booth and there's this old engineer and I'm talking about my sort of problematic sex life. <laughs> I'm like sweating. I'm sweating. I'm alone with this man. I'm reading it into the world and my shoulder just, or my trapezius just like instantly crimped. And like, I've had enough therapy to know that that's, those are all related. And I think I'm interested in thinking about what part of me is still afraid to have my story out there, my truth, my experiences to get bigger in the world. And I think my body is registering my anxiety and it's right now showing up in my trapezius. So we'll see what they think about if if they got any of that in the 2000 words I gave them. But I think that's so interesting. <laughs> we'll see. I love it. Yeah, I feel like new aches and pains come every day, and I'm like, really? I'm only in my 40s. Like, I thought this was like a 60s, 70s situation. You know? Totally. It's so humbling. So humbling. Yeah. I will. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks, Christy. I loved this book. I'm so excited you came on the show. I can't wait to see it come out into the world. I'm just so rooting for you in your corner and all that. Thank you so much. Thanks for all you do for writers and readers and listeners. It's incredible. It's such a bright light. You are a bright light and I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Well, I want to I want to read that essay by the way. So if you ever, <laughs> I, I'm serious, send it over. I will let you, I will, I definitely will. Okay. Yeah, workshop it and then I want to see it. <laughs> okay. Right. See you. Okay. Bye. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Sugar Wish. Send a surprise Sugar Wish to somebody you love and check it out yourself, sugarwish.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 